I just want to say hello, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the first time, delighted to be worshiping God with you today. A uh, question for you, did you all do your rock homework? Did you do your rock homework? Oh, yeah. Might have some work to do, huh? If you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about, pick up a CD of last weekend in the lobby or download it on the web and get a notes page and it'll lead you through that real important homework piece, uh, we think, for our spiritual development and formation. And if you've been around here for the past eight weeks, you know that we've been unpacking the story of Israel through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. And today we're coming to the end, the conclusion of the story of Israel in the Old Testament. It's also the end of the series that we call Authentic. As I've been telling you all along through the whole run, I've been resourced by some fantastic materials that Kevin and Sherry Harney and John Ortberg collaborated on together. And I hope this run of messages has been as helpful for you as it has been for me. This has been vital in my spiritual growth and development and hopefully for yours as well. And uh, uh, nothing's under wraps around here. Everything is in the full light of day. And so we're just going to start with where we're going to end today, okay? And it's with the big idea. And it goes like this, that there is incredible hope there is incredible hope in the fact that the arms of God are open wide to all of us. Get that. To all of us. Whenever we reach the end of ourselves and are ready to come home. That's where everything we're going to talk about today points toward. Why don't we pray together as we start in. God in heaven, it sure is a privilege to be with you and gathered up as your church and gathered up as your children. God, we sense your presence here. We sense that you're already doing something in our hearts, bringing us to a point of decision and commitment and renewal and deeper trust. God, I pray that we would be, a, as a community today, that our desire would be to run headlong home to you that we would run headlong home to you, that we would put down the stuff that's keeping us at an arm's distance from you, and we would pray that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. We're here for you because of you. Everything in this service is about you, God. We give it to you. And the church said, amen. In 586 BCE, the Babylonian army swept into Judah the nation of Israel, and sends the people of God into exile in Babylon. Now remember, back in 722 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and destroyed completely, and now, 586 BCE, Judah is swept away as well. And you talk about a traumatic event for the people and for the nation of Israel. It's probably the most traumatic event in their history because this exile deal was all about forced relocation. Exile meant that they would have to leave their homes forever. Exile went something like this. We talked about this a few weeks back just by way of reminder. Exile was about a superpower, a nation like Babylon would come in, they would conquer a country, and they would give most all the population a choice, move or die. Move or die. That's some kind of choice, right? Move or die. That's how ancient superpowers made sure that the people didn't try to rise up and rebel and recapture their homeland. In 722, that happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now the southern kingdom happens in 586, and it literally looks like the end of everything for the people of Israel. I just want you to imagine with me leaving everything in your world that is familiar to you and being exiled. 
You lose your job. You have to leave your home. You have to leave your country, as a matter of fact. You have to go live in a place that you don't know. You don't know the language. You don't know the customs. You go to a place where you will never have power. You'll never actually belong there. You'll have no influence. You'll have no resources. You have no means of even attaining those things. You are a stranger in a strange land. Your children will grow up in a whole other nationality with no connectedness to their national and religious roots except what you're able to pass on to them. And that's what it looked like for Israel to live in exile. It really, truly looked like the end of a dream, the death of God's vision for his chosen covenant people. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. If you don't have a text, you can follow along on the side screens, as always, 2 Kings chapter 25. And it's here in 2 Kings, we get a picture of how bad things had gotten near the end of Judah's history, the end of Israel's history. Just by way of context, Babylon had become the dominant world power of the day. This is an era when the prophet Jeremiah was alive and ministering, if you remember back to last weekend. And Jeremiah, if you remember, he kept saying to the people, look, exile is coming, Babylon will invade us, this will happen. But the people, they just wouldn't listen to him. They just refused to believe him. They were certain that God would never, ever let the holy city of Jerusalem come to ruin at the hands of some broken foreign army. God's not going to let something like that happen to us. They said, we're God's chosen people after all. That's what they said to the prophet Jeremiah. Very sadly, though, every single thing that Jeremiah predicted came true. Every single thing. And Zedekiah, who was one of the final kings of Judah, in opposition and disobedience to God, he tried to rebel against Babylon. Dumb move. Look with me as we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 25, starting in verse 7. They made, this is brutal, so buckle in. They made Zedekiah watch as they slaughtered his sons. They did that because they wanted to make sure that the seed of the king was entirely wiped out, dead. There would never be a chance for him to, his family to, rise up and reclaim the throne. Then they gouged out his eyes just to be double sure that that would never happen. They bound him in bronze chains and they led him away to Babylon. Sad picture. Incredibly sad picture. On August 14th of that year, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard and an official of the Babylonian king, arrived in Jerusalem. He burned down the temple of the Lord. Let those words wash over you. He burned down the temple of the Lord. He burned down the royal palace, all the houses of Jerusalem. He destroyed all of the important buildings in the city. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, then took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had declared their allegiance to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guard allowed some of the poorest people to stay behind in Judah and care for the vineyards and the fields. That way they were protecting their investment. Babylon was protecting their investment in Jerusalem by leaving some of the poorest people behind to tend to those sorts of things. So that is all that's left of the nation of Israel. Picture that. Virtually all of God's people now have been vacuumed right up out of the promised land. And it's at this point in history that Jeremiah, he writes a letter to those exiles who are now living in Babylon. And I just want you to put yourself in Jeremiah's place 
for a moment. Imagine that you have spent your whole life warning people about what's coming. And the people mock you, and the people laugh at you, the people they don't believe you, they throw you into prison, they throw you into the bottom of a muddy, stinky, abandoned cistern, then exactly and precisely what you were warning them about actually happens. It comes true. Now picture yourself, like Jeremiah, sitting down under those conditions, and you're writing a letter to those people who mocked you for all those years. Now, if you're Jeremiah, what phrase might you be slightly tempted to begin your letter with, right? Four words, right? Starts with an I, ends with a so, with the words told and you in between. Imagine that. If we're Jeremiah, most of us would be fighting back hearts filled with anger, right? Righteous indignation even, and rightly so, but not Jeremiah. His heart is still incredibly tender toward God and toward God's people. See, remember a few weeks back, we talked about the difference between a prophet and a jerk, right? We spent some time on the theological difference between those two things, being a prophet and being a jerk. Jerks, they're they're just that. They're jerks, right? But prophets, they're people of intense and burning love toward the people that they're sent to minister to. And that was the prophet Jeremiah. Though he certainly has to deal with the reality of the judgment and the exile of God's people, he also speaks of incredible love, incredible hope, incredible restoration that is eventually coming. Jeremiah gives very practical advice as well on how God's people should settle into living in their new land. Jeremiah shows us a level of tenderness that most of us would find unthinkable if we were in his shoes. Jeremiah 29 is actually one of the great letters in all of human history. He tells the people, look, don't despair. Don't despair. He tells them to live the very best lives they can. Make the best life you can. Settle in, try to establish as normal as a life that is possible. Build houses and plant gardens and eat what the gardens produce. Make the best life you possibly can, he tells them. And beyond all that, Jeremiah also writes to them in Jeremiah 29, 7. You can follow along in your text or on the screens. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Whoa. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Pray to God for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. Doesn't that seem quite counterintuitive? Shouldn't Jeremiah probably be telling them, like, you should rise up and overthrow the Babylonians so you can return to the promised land? Uh Uh-uh. Jeremiah tells God's people to pray for their enemies. Bless the very people who persecute you. Does that ring any bells? That sound at all familiar to you? That concept ought to be real familiar to we who follow Jesus, right? Because it was him who uttered these words from Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard the law that says, this is Jesus talking, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. 
For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. See, sometimes you'll hear people say, hey, I read the Old Testament and then I flip over to the New Testament, and this God of the Bible must be like schizophrenic or something, because when I read the Old Testament, I see a God who is angry and vengeful, but then I read the New Testament, and Jesus is talking about a God who is all like lovey-dovey and stuff. What is up with that? Sometimes people ask. What's up with that, see, is that the heart of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament beats with nothing but love for people, all people. He is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament of the Bible. Nothing is different. Nothing has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament to now as a matter of fact. His heart beats with love for people and he asks us, his children, to operate with that level of compassion and mercy toward people, all people, even people who are our enemies, even people who have wronged us. And that, see, is how God, through the prophet Jeremiah, can invite his people to pray for the people of Babylon, to pray for those enemies who have brought them so much harm and so much pain. How are you doing? with the whole love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you thing. How are you doing with that? It really isn't an option for we who follow Jesus Christ. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How's that going in your world? How are you doing at actually extending love to your enemies and praying for people who are out for your worst? How's that going? And see... The deal is that God is very, very concerned about his people and who they are becoming, the people of Israel and us today. Early on in the Old Testament, the people of God, you remember how it went, they wandered for 40 years in the desert before they could take possession of the promised land. That had a reason. That had a purpose. Because God cared more about who his people were becoming than he did about how long it took them to occupy the promised land. And here in Jeremiah, God is again, through the exile, working to shape his people. God is actually up to something with his people, even through something as bad as an exile. Look at what Jeremiah says in 29.10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Now, the people of Israel, when they got and they read this letter, they were going, Jeremiah, what are you smoking? You are living in some kind of a fantasy land because in those days, in ancient days, when a country was conquered and taken away into captivity, they didn't ever return. Once people went out into an exile, they just never came out of it. The Israelites who went into that exile, they knew exactly what to expect. They would eventually just blend in with the other people groups of the ancient world and their people and their culture and their story and their language and their faith. The story of God's interaction with all of humanity would be lost and forgotten forever. That's the stakes of this exile deal. And as a matter of historical fact, that's just how it went for all of the small countries that used to exist around Israel. Just think about all those small countries that were around Israel. How many in this room have a Moabite for a neighbor? Have you ever even heard of a Moabite? Uh Uh-uh. When was the last time you went over to a great Hittite restaurant 
for some good old-fashioned down-home Hittite cooking. How many of you have ever been to see the three Edomite tenors in concert? No. Nobody. Where did all those people go? What happened to them? They're just gone. Entirely gone. Their culture, their national identity just ceased to exist. And by all laws of human history, precisely the same thing should have happened to the nation of Israel once they entered into the Babylonian exile. There is literally no way on planet Earth that the people of Israel should have ever survived past 586 BCE except one thing, just one thing, and it's this, that God chose that they should survive it. God chose that they should survive. The story goes on. King Nebuchadnezzar, he dies in about 562 BCE, and Babylon then enters into a very steep and rapid decline. Babylon is invaded and defeated by a new kingdom, a new superpower, a new big kid on the block, the nation of Persia, which was founded by a king named Cyrus. And King Cyrus of Persia, he's kind of a cool dude. He landed on a new way to deal with exiled people. Look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing. That's a big deal right there, that God stirs the heart of the Persian king to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you, he says. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. The Lord stirred in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. That is an amazing statement. And Cyrus, he mails out this decree throughout the Persian Empire, and he says, look, God told me to have his people return to his city, Jerusalem. Cyrus is so kind that he even does a little fundraiser so they'll have some seed money to take with them to help rebuild the temple of God. That is unprecedented behavior in the ancient world absolutely unprecedented. You never let exiles go. You keep them. You hold on to them. You want their land. You want their labor. You don't send them back. But Cyrus made his decision. Why? Because the Lord stirred in his heart. You talk about a reminder that God's hand is always active in human history. God's hand is always active in human history. Now, we don't have any idea whether or not Cyrus had any idea that God was working in him and through him. But we do know that it was through his decision that God spared his people and actually brought them home. And so the story goes on, and the exiles, they return to Jerusalem. After decades away, they return. And just imagine their emotion after being away from home for so long in forced captivity Against every odd, God acts, and the exiles, they get to come home. Just think on their elation, their joy, their celebration. And they do. They come home. 
And right away, they get about the reconstruction of the city. And that rebuilding process, it takes a long time. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they cover more than a century as the chronicle of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. Read Ezra and Nehemiah sometime. This is fascinating stuff. They get about the rebuilding of the city, the temple, the national and religious life of all of Israel. But there's some upset people in that remnant who came back, see. Because what was rebuilt was not precisely what they had been hoping for. See, Israel used to be a nation of millions of people. Millions of people. But according to Ezra chapter 2, just 43,000 people come back from exile. That's not very many. From millions to 43,000 people. That meant the city of Jerusalem is not nearly as grand and impressive as it was before. The temple was not restored anywhere near the original splendor and majesty that it had in the days of Solomon. Now, there was a certain excitement that this 43,000 people who returned from exile carry with them about being home and so on, but there is a very deep sense still that something is missing. There's still a hole. Something is absent. All the old things that the exiles used to have that created their sense of identity they're just flat, gone. They used to have a son of David on the throne. No more. They would never again have a son of David on the throne ruling over them. They can't even govern themselves. They don't have an army. The walls of Jerusalem are in shambles. They don't have a king. They don't have any wealth. They're now just this obscure, tiny group of people on a tiny piece of real estate in the middle of a gargantuan Persian empire that wouldn't even notice if they just disappeared off the map like forever. I want to show you a map of the Persian empire. This is about 586 BCE, and that map is going to, there it is right there. And you can see that the Persian Empire goes all the way from India to Greece, all the way from central Russia, clear down to Libya in the south. And inside of this incredibly expansive kingdom, the land that was occupied by Israel is almost unnoticeable. That point on that arrow, can you see the black arrow down there above the Arabian Peninsula deal? That, the point of that arrow, that is Israel. That's how small and insignificant they are. Like, like a pinhead would barely cover it. That's them. That's what it looked like for them. And so those 43,000 people, they return from the exile, and they're sitting around and they're thinking, what difference in a world that looks like that could little Israel, a country, a nation, a people that had such incredible dreams, what kind of a difference could they ever make? But it took an exile for them to realize that God had something else in store for them rather than just being another superpower, another Babylon, another Assyria. Because, see, that was their ambition. They thought they were building another superpower for God, a God superpower right here on planet Earth. They wanted to have a mighty king who would lead them to win great battles, possess enormous wealth, conquer all kinds of new land, building an empire for God. But by this time in their history, it had become painfully apparent that that was not anywhere near what was going to happen. Those dreams are dead, and they weren't even the right dreams in the first place. They would have to die. Those were not God's dreams for his people. They never were. And a few among that 43,000, a few among that remnant of returned exiles, they began to dream a whole new dream, see. God began to birth in them a whole new vision for what could be for the people of God. 
They began to realize that what looked like an end could be just the beginning. See, maybe, just maybe, they would finally become a community that could become great. Not great because of their armies or because of their power or because of their wealth. Not because they looked so impressive, because they certainly didn't. But rather, they could become great because they are a people whose hearts have been turned to God. There's a lot of definitions of what greatness is out there. But true greatness defined by God is hearts that have been turned to him, intent upon humbly following him. That's greatness. Hearts that have been turned to God, humbly committed to follow him. But that kind of a community could only come into being if they died to all those old dreams that they dreamt for so many years. And see, from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning, God's first interaction with human beings, he's been waiting, see. He's been waiting for a group of people who'd be, who would be willing to join together in community and pray the greatest prayer that a human being can ever pray, and it's this, God, not my will, but yours. God, not my will, but yours. That's what God has been waiting for. A group of people who says, all right, God, we'll die to all of the selfish and opposite of you dreams that we have for our lives and what wealth looks like and what power looks like, what success looks like, and we collectively place your will ahead of our will. Not my will, God, but yours. And the irony for the nation of Israel is that their nation and their government and their boundaries, their army, their wealth, the majority of their population is all gone. It's been completely stripped away. But it was only then that the people of God, that the children of Israel could come to a place where God could use them to expand his kingdom. When they had authority and power as a nation, they just blew it, didn't they? They squandered it away. They never used it to expand God's kingdom. When they had all those powerful kings on the throne, when they had all that military might, they actually only became weaker and weaker as a nation. But it's only now, when all of that's gone, they don't have a formal government, they don't have an army, they don't have any money, most of their people are gone. They don't have any human authority whatsoever. But finally, there's this little group of people, a remnant, who are ready to say, not my will, God, but yours. That's what matters. And if you start at the beginning of the Old Testament and you read all the way through to the end, the story you read is the story of everything that God has done to arrive at this place with this little remnant, 43,000 people back in the promised land. From Abraham to Ezra is about 1,600 years. That's the span of time, 1,600 years. And over the course of those 1,600 years, the people of God, the children of Israel, they learned so many lessons, but they chose to learn most all of those lessons the hard way, didn't they? Right? We read the story of the Old Testament, and it's like, oh, my word, when are you guys going to get it? But they didn't have to learn all those lessons the hard way, but they chose to. But see, we do not have to learn them the hard way. I sometimes think that I need to learn lessons the hard way. Lots of us are in that together, right? 
But we actually have the ability to look on the lives of people who have gone before us and learn from their mistakes. See, I've said it for a very long time. I do not have to steer into the same potholes that you have steered into. I can actually learn from you. You don't have to steer into the same potholes that I've steered into, and I have. You can learn from me. We can learn from each other. We can all learn from the, from the lives of all of God's children, both our contemporaries and those from the Scripture. And over the course of the past two months or so, we've learned an incredible amount as we've allowed ourselves to be exposed to the words of the Old Testament prophets, right? We've learned what Israel did that they were so harshly judged by God for because those prophets, they actually became the voice of God, a conscience for God with the people of Israel that is unparalleled in all of human history. And what's quite amazing to me is that the Bible, which is Israel's holy book, makes so much room for all of those prophets who were so incredibly critical of the people of Israel and their practices. You might think that they would have been better off just tossing those books out. Nah, we don't need people to see how bad we were and hear how bad we were. But they chose to keep them in because the voice of God is so loud and so clear through them. They kept them in. Because they knew we would need those same books. We would need those same instructions. If you think back over the last couple of months, this authentic message run, we started with the prophet Elijah. He confronted a king and he confronted a queen. He confronted a nation. And through all of that, God showed up and revealed his incredible power through the prophet Elijah. Remember the prophet Elisha then? He left a very promising career path to take on the mantle of ministry and continued to speak God's word in a very dark time in Israel's history. Then we talked about the prophet Amos, right? And he held out a plumb line as an object lesson, as an illustration to show God's people that their lives were not straight, their lives were not true, Amos said to God's people, look, if there are hungry people, would you just feed them? If there are people in prison, would you just visit them? If there are hurting people, just comfort them, would you? Amos reminded God's people and us as well that a nation and that a society will be judged by how it treats the marginalized in that society. And then we talked about the prophet Isaiah and how he spoke to a generation, though they certainly practiced religion. They were practicing religion all over the place, but their hearts were still very far from God. Isaiah invited them to a new, real, and authentic faith. And Hezekiah, remember Hezekiah, he faced fear, didn't he? But he chose to follow God even when he couldn't see exactly how God was going to deliver him. And then we talked about the prophet Micah, those powerful words, the question he asks, what does God really want from us? What does God really want from us? And then he answers the question, he's shown you. It's not some secret somewhere. Do justice, remember? Do the right thing. Love mercy and walk humbly with God. And then last week we talked about the prophet Jeremiah who through the tears and through the beating and through the sorrow continued to speak the words of God to the hard-hearted, resistant people of God. And over and over and over again, God is calling his people through his prophets. Talk about a journey over the last couple of months. 
And what's so amazing to me about all of this is that after all of the ups and downs of the people of God and the nation of Israel, when it looks like they've just about bottomed out and that's it, they end up in exile, just this tiny pitiful remnant are able to return to the land. It's only then that they end up in a place where they're finally ready to pray that prayer. All right, God, not my will, not our will, your will be done, God. And they get there finally, but it's taken an awfully long time. And it's then and only then, though, that God is ready to use them. How about you? Are you in that place with the people of Israel? Are you in a place to be able to pray that prayer, not my will, God, but yours be done? Because see, the people of Israel, they were on this downward trajectory right toward oblivion. Because why? Because they had some things. They had some stuff. They had some dreams and some hopes. They had some idols, frankly, that they just didn't want to put down for the sake of following God. They wanted to have it both ways. They wanted to have their cake and be able to eat it too, so to speak. They wanted their stuff to fit in with God's agenda for them. But God does not work that way. God does not work that way. And see, we do not have any need to ride the up and down roller coaster like the people of Israel did for all those 1,600 years until we finally get to the place where we say, not my will, God, but yours. Not my will. Not my way, not my hopes, not my dreams, not my aspiration, but God, yours trumps all of that. We don't have to ride that up and down roller coaster like they did because we've got the benefit of history, see. And the benefit of history shows us the pain and the heartache and the damage that going our own way invites into our lives. Because see, the truth is, that God's arms are open wide to us, every single one of us. There is absolutely nothing that you could ever do that counts you out of God's love and his grace and his care for you. Absolutely nothing you could ever do. And the quickest way home to God is to arrive at the place where you can put down your stuff, where you can lay down your idols, your dreams, your aspirations that you're clinging to that are keeping you at a distance from God, you can put all of that down and come home just by saying, not my will, God, your will be done. Not my way, God, but your way. And so, what is it? What is it that you've been holding on to that's keeping you at a distance from God? What is it that you've been grasping so tightly to that you know is in no way compatible with God's way? What is it that you might be pursuing more than you've been pursuing your heavenly father, your savior, the rescuer of your soul? I want to invite you just to take your things and set them aside if you would. And I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just tell God what it is that you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart and your mind. You can do that now. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would. 
And I just want to challenge you to think about those questions. What have you been holding on to that's keeping you at a distance from God? What is it that you've been grasping so tightly to that you know isn't compatible with a relationship with God? What have you been pursuing? What have you been pursuing more than you've been pursuing your heavenly Father, your Savior, the rescuer of your soul? I want to invite you, I want to challenge you today to, to just put that stuff down. To just put it down and come home to God. Just put it down. And I know there's lots of us in this room who have been Christ followers for a long, long time now. And for you, that might mean that you have some serious confession and forgiveness and repentance work to do with God in these moments. Do that. Do serious business with God in this time. And just put it down. Just get to a place where you can pray the prayer that Israel prayed after all those years. Not my will, God, but yours. See, it doesn't take an exile to get to that place. It just takes a willingness to say, not my will. God, I'm tired of going at life my way. God, I'm going your way. Because see, God's been waiting and he's been hoping that you would put that stuff down and that you would come home for a long, long time now. Just put it down and come on home. be sitting in this room today and as you reflect in these moments you know that you don't yet have your own relationship with God I want you to know it doesn't have to stay that way God doesn't ever want it to be that way as a matter of fact he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to be your savior to be the rescuer of your soul and by putting your faith and trust in him you can come home to God today you can begin a friendship with God today, right now. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God by praying along with me right where you're sitting. You can pray a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. Today, God, I realize, though, that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend, and I want you to change me. I need you to clean my life up, God. Today, God, I'm coming home. Not my will, but yours. And if you prayed with me just then, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. You know that? Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight than that prayer, that decision. And around here, it's such a big deal that we actually ask people to tell us when they've made that decision, when they've prayed that prayer. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me. I want you to know that nobody's looking around. And nobody's going to embarrass you. 
But if you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? You can sure do that now and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm coming home to God today. I'm putting that stuff down. Yeah, way to go, man. Way to go. And you too, bud. Way to go. God's changing you right now and he's making you new. Are there any others? I don't want to miss anybody. Just lift your hand up and make eye contact with me. And Make sure I catch your eye. Yeah, you too. Way to go. Right now, God is changing you and he's making you new. You're coming home. Put all that down. Way to go. God, home with you is where we want to be. There's a rightness to it. There's a rightness to it that we never get when we're just doing our own thing, running our own life, God. Our heart's desire is that you would be on the throne of our hearts and our lives, ruling and reigning with authority and power in our hearts, God. And there's a lot of stuff that keeps us from that place. And we, today as a community, we say we're putting it down and we're coming home. Not our will, God, but yours. You're in charge. You're calling the shots. It isn't about what we want. It's about what you want for us, God. And we want to be that community, God, because that's the community that you use. That's what you brought your people to after all those thousands of years. That's the place you brought them to. But it doesn't take an exile. We don't have to go that far. We can just decide right now. Not our will but yours, and so we do, because we want to be useful to you, God. We want to be your light. We want to be your life on the planet, that others would see you in and through us. Would you use us that way, God, please? The band is going to lead us in worship through music for the rest of our time together, along with communion, as you can see. And if you're new to this communion deal, communion is Jesus' followers saying, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. Thank you so much. I will never forget the sacrifice that you, Jesus, paid for my salvation. I'm yours, God. I'm committed to go your way. And there's these stations that are set up around the room, and you can feel free to move out to those communion stations once the offering bags have gone by. If you'd wait for those to come by, that'd be real helpful. And then just lead yourself in the taking of communion. You can just dip the bread into the cup. And like I said, those ushers will be by in a moment with the offering bags. I want you to know if you're a guest, there's no obligation whatsoever to give. Please, we invite you as our guest to let those bags go right on by you. Some of us around here choose to participate in the giving deal because it's worship and it's obedience and it's dependence upon God as our provider. But once those offering bags have passed by you, just move out to those stations. And there's plenty of time. You can linger and you can do the business with God you need to do up ahead of communion and on the back side of it. Feel free to take your time and pray that prayer. Not my will, God, but yours be done.